Good morning, LAFC. So we cry out to God, we call out to him, and we think we get this busy signal. You'll hear from me in 15 years. Um, some of us feel that way sometimes. Now today we're going to be exploring some of this today in the preaching and in our reflection time at the end of the service. But before we move forward, you're going to need scripture in your hand. So our ushers have Bibles for you to use today, and they're happy to pass one along to you as they walk the aisles. Keep it if you don't have a Bible. I often use this very same Bible that they're passing out. I do, I do appreciate using um, the, the Bible app, but using the book helps me keep my focus. Um, there, there's so many things available on your phone or your tablet. This helps me keep my focus. So um, almost always I raise my hand in these services when I'm there to say, hey, give me one and make eye contact. So don't feel any shame in raising your hand. Uh, feel shame if, you know, you wink at them and give them kissy faces or something. So ushers, heads up, you might get winks and kissy faces. Apologies. So this week we have, we have an amazing week. As you walked in, you saw the red and the blue sports world this, this week, which is an incredible program put together by multiple ministries that uh, starts with discipling of our high school students and overflows into our middle school students, and then it gets to overflow to where my kids are right now in elementary. And it's amazing to see how faith is grown with, with so many of these ministries working together. It's going to be an awesome week. So, hey, happy Father's Day to everybody. Happy Father's Day. Um, I hope you have good plans for Father's Day. My hope is to see a movie and eat a sandwich. So, um, yeah, seriously, sandwiches are totally undervalued in life. Um, I'm excited about today. Today we have my big, fat Moabite murder. That's the title of today's sermon. Um, I, if you don't know me, I am Nicholas Todd. I'm the Minister of Mobilization here. And uh, Pastor Tony, before he went on sabbatical, put a team together for preaching, and so I feel honored that Tony would invite me to be part of this. Our series is Ablaze, Life and Scripture Meet, and the team of preachers for this series have the great opportunity to teach, to talk about, to preach, and overflow from scriptures that have impacted their life in some way. Some of it's from the far past, maybe a first moment in their pilgrimage with Christ, and we celebrate that because we, we have hindsight to be able to identify it. For all of us, though, Scripture continues to challenge us in our modern, in our day-to-day. -day. We have to remember that. It's not just from the past. It's in our here and now. For, so for those of you that have journeyed for a time with Christ, don't put away Scripture. Keep pulling it out. Keep turning that gem. Keep exploring. Today we're going to be looking at a book in Scripture that first caught my eye when I was a sophomore in university. Uh, this was, there was this one professor, he's an Old Testament professor, that was known for his shocking requirement to write a 20-page end-of-term paper on an Old Testament book of the Bible. Now, not being, being significantly older now, I think 20 pages is, is not much. In my current doctoral program, 20 pages is just called Thursday. Um, so it was... Yeah, I was shocked at the time that you could write 20 pages on anything. So uh, your assigned book for this Old Testament professor um, in my undergrad program, it was, the book was written on a slip of paper that you would pull from a hat early in the semester. And I was maybe 10th in line to pull from the hat. And um, I don't know what I was hoping for. I don't remember that. I, I remember I just wasn't first. And for some reason, first meant I would get what I wanted. I, I, who knows? Um, but I drew the book of Judges 
And immediately, the professor said, Oh, Nick, I think you'll find this one interesting. <laughs> and I thought in that moment, I thought, it, he's supposed to say that, right? He's the Old Testament professor. He's paid to say that. I started thinking in my journey, how important can any one book of Scripture be? Now, a dangerous next step that, that we do experience, that people in this room have asked is, not just how important is one book, but how important is the Old Testament to us anyways? Jesus didn't come until the New Testament. Well, on Friday, Ray Lucas, former missionary to Honduras, former elder, past member of our missions committee, he turned 90 years old. He has told a story before. I've heard it a number of times. I even uh, checked with his older children about this story, and I couldn't get the story out of my head. The picture on the screen is of the Lucas family, and Ray and Norma Lee are sitting in front. So Ray and Norma Lee in 1966 moved as a family of eight. It actually wasn't just a family of eight. It was a family of eight plus one on the way to be missionaries in the interior of Honduras. They were in La Jolla, Honduras, living out of a trailer. Their two oldest kids have memories of sleeping outside. The rest of the family would sleep inside the trailer. Now, to make space for the people that were inside the trailer for sleeping, all the things, all the stuff that it takes to live would be placed outside the trailer. Ray had this loose-leaf Schofield study Bible that he would read, study, and preach from. One night, as the family was preparing for bedtime, as they did the same things they did every night, they were taking all the stuff that's inside, kind of packaging it up and setting it right outside the door. Um, Ray took his Bible, put it into a metal wash bin, and placed it outside to make space for the family to sleep. They woke the next morning, and as they looked outside, there was just something different going on visually. Uh, papers were strewn about, ripped up, blowing in the wind. It hit them at that point that, Oh my gosh, all these pages were from Ray's Bible. So they cleaned up what they could and tried to salvage what they had. And in the process of, of determining what happened, the story was a local dog had smelled the leather cover, came after it. And in the process of chewing up the leather cover, he destroyed about a quarter of the pages in the Bible. And remarkably, only Ray's New Testament was destroyed. Only the New Testament. And Ray had always been a New Testament guy. Always, always preached from the New Testament. Studied the New Testament. He was a lover of Greek because of the New Testament. And he has said before that he didn't value the Old Testament the same. So think about this. After moving his family of eight plus one on the way to Honduras to be a missionary, to plant churches, to wholeheartedly talk about the message of Christ, God said to him, I think it's time for you to focus on the Old Testament. It doesn't matter how old you are or what you do in life. God is working to mature us. In Ray's study and preaching of the Old Testament, he became even more committed to the work before him because he saw that our God is a missionary God, not starting with Jesus in the New Testament, but starting all the way back in Genesis. So today is the first in our current series from the Old Testament. 
will be in the book of Judges, the same book that I wrote a 20-page paper on so long ago. My professor said, ooh, Nick, I think you'll find this one interesting. And as I have grown and turned this book over and as I have looked back at that paper, I'm not the same person that wrote that paper. Today you won't hear my 20-page paper. Yeah. But uh, as I think about who I am today and what I've learned and how that was a foundation for something, if anything, to this day, I find it more interesting, more intriguing, and more timely than ever for me as an individual and for us as a country. So let me shoot real straight with you. What you're going to hear today is in the Bible. I'm not making it up. It, it, there's going to be a moment where I, I, I'm going to elaborate just a little bit, and I will say this is, not, this is not coming directly from the text. Just bear with me, and I'm trying to explain something to you. But everything you hear is in the book of Judges. You ready? All right. We're going to start with a really wide view of Judges, an overview. We're going to come in for a closer view, and then we're going to back out, back out again for reflection and application. Let's start with the overview. The book of Joshua precedes the book of Judges. And Joshua was the leader that brought the Israelites into the Promised Land. Near the end of the book of Joshua, after entering the Promised Land, and near the end of his life, he says this to the Israelites. It's Joshua 23, 6-8. It's in the app. I'll read it to you now. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. And this message sounds very similar in my head to Pastor Joel's message the previous week. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of the world, to the people around you. 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's a beautiful word, both in Romans and at the end of Joshua. And if followed, would I believe, it would witness boldly to the lives of the surrounding nation. A transformed life people see. It would give testimony to the character of God. And that's what leads us into the book of Judges. But I want to be a little more specific in relationship to Joshua's charge to the Israelites. He was saying, don't be like your neighbors, the Canaanites. Don't be morally corrupt. Don't worship their God. Don't sacrifice your children for their God. Stay on the path. All right, spoiler, sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, the book of Judges has been out for a while, so I don't think I'm going to ruin it for anybody with this. But there was complete failure. Complete failure by Israel to not worship idols, to keep the law of Moses. Basically, everything Joshua challenged them to do in his closing speech, in his final words, they didn't do. When you hear the word judge today, or when you read it in the book of Judges, don't think of white powdery wigs and black robes with a gavel. This judge 
is tribal leadership, a form of political military leadership. And it sounds dangerous to me this way. And you should hear it that way as well. This is dangerous. I mean, the book of Judges starts with, this is the moment where I'm telling you this is scripture. The book of Judges starts with the men of Judah cutting off the thumbs and big toes of their enemies. We have a death later. And here's the deal. I'm going to talk about uh, scripture. It, It just sounds outrageous. Who cuts off big toes and thumbs? I feel like we've learned that lesson. Uh, they, they have not. So th- there's this moment where I kind of laugh a little bit. And it's a nervous laughter because of, of what's there. But it, get, it gets worse. We have a death later where the weapon of choice, it's a death later where the weapon of choice is a hammer and a tent peg. We have buildings full of people set on fire. We have human trafficking. We have child sacrifice. And this isn't the Canaanites. This isn't the neighbors. This is Israel. Samson is probably one of the most well-known of the judges, and he can be painted as a role model. At the end of a performance of Samson on the stage, I saw uh, maybe in the last 18 months, I, too, wanted to stand between the pillars of the temple and knock it down. There's this moment, like, Samson is this hero. I want to be that man. But then I go back to Scripture and read that it was vengeance that he sought for losing his eyes. He does pray, Lord, give me the strength so that I might have vengeance on the people who took my eyes. I'm all for ending caricatures of the people in Scripture. A more complete picture is needed of people for people, and we are those people. So when we think of Samson, how do we address the extreme violence, the rage, the vengeance, the pride, the arrogance, the sexual immorality, his demands, and his ignoring of the past, and his rejection of wisdom? I didn't address it for a long time. I read one moment where he crumbled the temple and I wanted that strength. Why did he want it? For vengeance. I forgot about the rest of the picture. Now the story of Samson is an incredible story. It's in scripture, but it's specifically in the book of Judges, which follows a pattern over and over. It's a pattern that happens over and over in the book and it gets worse and darker and more dangerous as the book goes on. The pattern is this, evil and sin pervades all that the Israelites do. They are oppressed by their neighbors or surrounding nations. They come to a place where they can see that what they have done, what they have done exactly, what they were told not to do, they, they, they see it, we are wrong, and they repent. They cry out to God. A judge would then be raised up who would deliver the Israelites from their oppressors, and then there would be a time of peace. And then it would start over again. Evil, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. Oh, and again, evil, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. By the time we get to the end of the book, we have an issue that kind of combats with, with our modern storytelling that we get today. Against all that I desire in movies and stories, the book of Judges doesn't get wrapped up tightly by the end. The last verse of the book of Judges is this. 
In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Hundreds of years where they did as they saw fit. This pattern, evil, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace, and then evil. So today, we're going to dive in a little bit more. I want to take a closer look at Judges by looking at one specific part. Earlier in the book, intentionally, because it's some of the more subdued content. We'll be in Judges 3, 12 through 30. If you've got one of the church Bibles, that's page 166 in the church Bible. As you're turning there, I want to just, just draw this to your attention. I believe the pronunciation officially for this character is Ehud. Um, please don't let my pronunciation today distract you from Scripture. I'm actually just going to say Ehud. It's a little bit easier. It's, it's, it's how I've heard it in my head. All the jokes I have in my head about it was Ehud. And so that's, we're going to plow forward. That's what we're going to do. So I'm acknowledging this very intentionally that I'm probably saying it wrong. So keep your hand in the Bible. If you've turned there, get ready. Um, Pray with me as we take a closer look. Heavenly Father, thank you for all of Scripture. Jesus, thank you for coming for us. Thank you for the Old Testament and how, how we do have the book of Judges and we can learn from it. And Lord, today I want to I pray for this congregation for myself that as I preach and as they listen, Lord, would you remove the barriers that might be between you and them? Would they hear the truth? Would they see patterns in their own lives that are preventing them from fully knowing the character of you? Lord, would some of the simple things, maybe the way I, I, my accent or the way I talk or pronunciation, Lord, would that not prevent change in their life. Lord, we, we hold your scripture proudly. Would it change our lives? In your name I pray, amen. We're gonna look at Judges 3, 12 through 30. Follow along with me as I read. Again, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself said, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sunk in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. 
Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind them, behind him and locked them. After he had gone out, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the upper room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, when, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked it, unlocked them. They, there they saw their Lord fall onto the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Now, when I read scripture, I believe that every bit is there for a reason. There is no filler. That means my reading patterns start big and wide, and then I move into a more in-depth study later. And sometimes I laugh at what I read, or I'm shocked by what I just read, and I end up asking, what was that? It's okay to do that. It's okay to say, what did I just read? Here's the thing, though. Don't skip over that question. If you have time for more in-depth study, a form of what is that, the other questions are, why is that there? Why is this important? And answers to those questions, you can't always find them. For now, though, if I can't find those answers, I'll continue to journey, I'll continue to study, I'll continue to read the grandness of all of the canon of Scripture to see how this fits. Also, so you know, every resource I use for my study of Scripture is available to you as well. Um, I didn't learn this in school. This is just what it's become as I've gotten older. Anybody can study Scripture with the same resources I use. So we just read through Judges 3, 12 through 30. Let's dig in starting in verses 12 through 14. The pattern I already told you about is evident in the very first line. Again, which means it happened before, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Eglon was the Moabite king at the time, and he created an alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites, which, as I saw, this created like a super team of anti-Israelite villains. And together they conquered and took control of the Israelites. For 18 years, this oppressive kingdom existed. 18 years of abuse and vitriol. Verse 15. Somewhere in this time, the Israelites recognize they have not heeded the direction of Joshua. And they have not been a witness to their history and the historic deliverance out of Egypt by God. And they have conformed to the practices of their idol-worshiping neighbors. You see how each one of these is a strike, exactly working against what Joshua had challenged them to do. So they cry out to the Lord, and a deliverer was given to them. Ehud is his name. We have a short description of him, very simple. He was a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. It might seem a little insignificant which hand he was or that he was a Benjamite. But the question is, why is that there? Why is this important? Did you know that lefties only make up 10% of the world today? 
Are there any lefties in this room today? Okay, just think about it. One, two, sweet. I love it. I think that, that may be about right based on the numbers. So um, almost everything is designed for a right-handed world. Scissors, a mouse for a computer, a can opener, golf clubs, power tools, measuring tape. Even our coffee mugs have either been intentionally or unintentionally designed for the right-handed user. When uh, we had this LEFC mug in the office kitchen, uh, the picture's on the screen, I have it on stage. Now, this is the view that you see on your screen that you get when, as a right-hander, you hold it. You put it on your desk, you put it down, you get to look over there, and you see where you go to church. You see that this is your LEFC cup. As the user, you see the logo and you go, mm, yeah, LEFC, I like that. You know what a lefty sees? <laughs> a blank, white, ceramic face. I would like to think just at this moment, I am not left-handed, but to defend the lefties as I hold my cup left-handed now, that lefties are the more evangelical of the people in the room. <laughs> as they proudly show the world their coffee-drinking friends, those appointments they have, that this, this is where I go to church. <laughs> now, it's, it's not really the case, though. But we have a right-handed world. And I believe it's the same in the time of the book of Judges. How would it be any different? But what about the Benjamite connection? There's like three mentions of left-handed people in Scripture, just three. All Benjamites, in Judges 20, there are 700 young Benjamites, warriors that could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And by hair, the, the hair on your head, not mine. And they're all left-handed. A left-handed warrior creates a certain level of chaos for the other side. If the world is designed for right-handed warfare and a left-handed person is in the fight, where you hold your shield, how you hold your shield, your footwork, your strategy, it all needs to change. You ready for something funny? This is, I, I love this. Uh, what does Benjamin mean? Benjamin means son of my right hand. And we have this left-handed individual who's sent to be the judge of Israel. I, I got I laughed at that a good bit. Like, how on earth is this in Scripture? This is too good. So this left-hander from a tribe of people whose name means son of my right hand has a mission. He's sent to pay tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Verse 16. For his trip, he has a double-edged sword made that he keeps on his right thigh. Why does Scripture tell us this? Who cares? We already know he is left-handed, which seems to be unique. But what about the sword? Some of the models, most of the models of swords in that time were very similar to this sword that I stole from my children. Um, this is Jake and the Neverland Pirates. <laughs> and it follows the pattern of swords in that time. They were curved, single-edged, designed for slashing and slicing. With most people being right-handed, those people would keep their single-edged sword on their left side. A righty grabs his sword from his left, like so. 
Now, this sword is a little smaller than the swords they actually use. The size of such a weapon, such as this, would make it difficult to hide. Unless, of, unless, of course, how does warfare work? If this is a standard operating weapon, you want people to see that sword. You want people to know that you have a weapon they shouldn't mess with. So something special had to be created. A non-traditional weapon is made for Ehud. One that can hide, that he can hide. It's shorter. This is 15 inches. A cubit is somewhere between 12 and 18 inches. And it's designed for a different kind of attack. There's no slashing here. It's unique. Specifically created for what's about to happen. So, verse 17 through 19. With the tribute... And a hidden weapon, Ehud and his team have a meeting with the king. The presentation of the tribute is recognizing that Eglon is king. Give honor to your king. This is due him. And this man, Eglon, is very large. He is described specifically as a very fat man. Now, fat's an interesting word. I don't always want to go to original languages because those can seem like a line that people don't want to cross in their own personal study of Scripture. And I get it. It feels like a hurdle that only some cross because of the labor involved. But there are great free tools that exist that allow you to see the original language. And who knows what it's going to stir up and what it's going to show you. As I looked up this specific word for fat, it's used 14 times in the Old Testament. I thought, well, I'm going to check that out. How are these other 14 times used? And most often, the term is used to describe sheep, oxen, cows. And Eglon was a meaty individual, a beast, if you will. And the word to describe him was used to describe livestock, ready for slaughter. For Eglon, the delivery of the tribute was something that was owed him as king. So he receives it. Group is dismissed. Ehud and team leave and walk a distance, and Ehud, alone this time, a single individual, turns around to go back to the king with something else. Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. Now, that's a little exciting, don't you think? I have something secret that only you can hear. It's like hearing like a singing telegram or something quite unique. So let's talk about security for a second. I, this is the moment where I'm reading into the text a little bit. I'm trying to give credit to Eglon and his security team. The king and his guards are no fools. You better believe that when the team of an oppressed people show up to give honor, they're going to get searched for weapons. A whole team of people with weapons aren't going to be allowed in the king's chambers. And no, mention, no weapons are mentioned when the team shows up. They leave, and then a single individual returns. And one person is not nearly as threatening as a whole team. Think about it. He shows up. His security team says, what's going on? He says he has a secret message. And you know, oh, I've already searched this guy. He didn't have a weapon then, but he left and came back. He's a threat. He could have come back packing. So you search him again as you know how to search him. Now, TSA and airport security have changed a lot in the last decade. As new threats are detected, 
The security protocols changed. Most often nowadays, you need to remove your shoes to go through security. This started after someone created explosives that were hidden in their shoes. Before that moment, I never had to take off my skinny-soled flippy floppies to prove they were indeed 100% flippy floppies. But things have changed. They search my bag. They see my swim trunks, swim trunks plus flippy floppies. I mean, I'm on a trip to the beach, on vacation, something else. And they let me through. I'm no threat. So for myself and for my safety and security, now that there is awareness, I happily take them off. The flip-flops. And I send them to the scanner. Now, Eglon's security had most likely only encountered the 90% of the world that were right-handed. And the remaining 10% of the world that were lefties were most likely not given a place of prominence because of how strange and odd it would seem to use your left for everything. So they searched him as they know how to search him. And then he's through. He tells the king that he has a secret message for him. A single person, seemingly unarmed, most likely significantly smaller than this fat king doesn't seem like a threat. The king orders his attendants to leave, and that's what they do. Just the king and Ehud in the same room. Verses 20 through 23. Ehud approaches the king and interests the king more by saying something similar to his first announcement. This time it's, I have a message from God for you. I mean, that's a little bit more exciting. So the king stands. And with his left hand, Ehud reaches to his unsearched right thigh and pulls out a shorter-than-average double-edged sword. And with such close proximity, there's no swishing or swiping, just one thrust. Violent and strong enough to penetrate fat and flesh. So deep, so forceful, that the handle sank in as well. So deep, so forceful, so violent, that Eglon lost control of his bowels. And the fat closes in over the sword. No weapon is visible anymore. Eglon dies. And Ehud escapes from the porch, locking the doors to prevent people from coming into the space. Well, his servants eventually want to know what's going on. We're in verse 24. So they go to check on him. It's locked, and they can't see the king, and they don't want to really disturb the king by yelling at him through the door. So they use their other senses to check on him. They can smell what came out of his bowels and decide he must be going to the bathroom. I did not write this on purpose, but no one working under the king wants to be the one that caused a stink. So the servants wait to the point of total embarrassment. They find a key, they unlock the door, and they see Eglon, their king, dead on the floor. No murderer in sight. He had gotten away. Verse 27. Ehud had made it out without a problem. He rallies the Israelites and leads them into battle. 10,000 more Moabites were killed. And then the land had peace. Until it didn't. Two verses later, as we break into chapter 4. 
And it says, and again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In Judges, the peace never lasts. A cycle over and over and over. Peace becomes chaos, becomes peace, becomes chaos, and that's how it ends, just in the book of Judges. And for me, as I've looked at this book, as, as what kind of impact has it made on my life, I marvel at the patience of God with all of creation. Because I believe that God moves through ordinary people like you and I, and he gives us a hope. In the Old Testament, we see people struggling to understand the character of God. And what is beautiful about the entire canon of Scripture is the Old Testament lays a foundation for humankind trying to get it right, trying to journey well, but get caught in a nasty cycle because they fail to remember the past and fail to fully understand the character of God. Also, I feel like the Old Testament can be oddly encouraging. Even judges can be oddly encouraging because it normalizes the darkness and the nastiness in my life and your life. Because we also struggle trying to understand our God and the character of God. But there's hope. We hit the New Testament and it is in Jesus that we have God come to us, God in the flesh. What is the character of God? Let's check out Jesus. That's the character of God. Patient until the end, longing for us to follow, and giving us a way out of this cycle. Judges 2, 16 through 19, it gives a great summary statement for the cycle we read through in Judges. Here it is. When the judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. At the end of our services, we frequently have a time at the end to reflect on the scripture that's been taught. Scripture has gone out and it's hit us. And where does it address our life? Then I'm not, I don't like being a foregone conclusion, but we're doing that today as well. I ask you to pray, to name the thing that has come to your mind about your own life that needs to be addressed. And then I want you to move forward from there. Here's why I often say, name it. Acknowledging an area that needs healing by naming it allows you to take one step closer to healing. You cannot heal what you do not acknowledge. If you don't see you have sin, what need is there for a savior? Maybe it's time for you today to acknowledge gaps in your life. Acknowledge the ways you have wronged people. Acknowledge how you may have been in a pattern of perceived peace. Acknowledge how you might be scared of the work it takes to change cycles in your life. Acknowledge your stubborn ways. Acknowledge your evil practices. And don't get caught up too much with that word evil. Think of it this way. This way. What cycles do you need to acknowledge that don't give life to yourself or those around you? And consider this. What idols have you made that pull your focus from God? 
I think with our culture, that idol is often self and our self-preservation. The staff and prayer team would be honored to join you in prayer. In our bulletins, we have a response card. If you're willing to share as you're praying, if something's said to you and you feel willing to share it with us, please fill out that card. We'll pray for you all throughout the week. Also, at the end of the service, people stand under the cross, ready to pray with you, if you would like to pray with someone. Call out to the Lord in this time. Ask the Lord for that one something you must address. Ask the Lord for one thought, and then be ready to to walk out with it and follow the Lord. Don't be discouraged by what you may have heard during your prayer time. Let it encourage you because you can be set free from it. As we call out to God, we must be attentive to where he is calling us to and what we must address. So go now. Follow where Christ calls you. Proclaim the message God gives you and wait in hope. Avoid becoming bound by the patterns that have limited you. May God be your safe place. May Christ give you courage for the path ahead. And may the Spirit guide you back when you stray. Church, for everybody in this space, turn in a circle. Greet the people around you. Welcome them if you don't know them. Make a friend. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.